0: reading from the book of Luke. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. He is the one who built us, our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went, to a town called nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him as he drew near to the gate of the town behold a man who had died was being carried out the only son of his mother and she was a widow and a considerable crowd from the town was with her and when the lord saw her he had compassion on her and said to her do not weep then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers bearers stood still and he said young man I say to you arise and the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother fear seized them all and they glorified God saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people and this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country the gospel of the Lord
1: Father, in heaven, uh, we hear these stories about um, about Jesus healing, uh, even resuscitating the dead, bringing them back to life. Uh, And Father, um, there's there's a deep part of us that doesn't really think you're as good as that. We want to confess that. And will you visit us? Will you visit us, uh, not just to check in and say hello, see how it's going, but rather uh, intervene in our lives in such a way that the lies we're believing about you are thrown down and our chains that we might not even know that bind us might be loosed, and that we might see the beauty of Jesus that surpasses our capacity to desire? Will you grant that? We ask it boldly. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat and um, uh, turn back to the uh, the big reading from the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to focus on, we're going to have some big readings as we continue through the Gospel of Luke. We're not going to be able to uh, talk about it every single verse. Um, that can happen more in home groups, which we encourage you to join um, we're going to be looking at the first paragraph there. Uh, let me tell you a story. So, um, this story is about a pastor. I knew this pastor. I wasn't there when this occurred, but it completely fits with who this person is. Was um, many years ago, there was this pastor in a in a in a big urban uh, center, and uh, a person. He was he was doing a funeral. He was preparing for a funeral. And the guy that had died was this really, really impressive figure, business leader, civic leader, um, lots of remarkable accomplishments. And the the, uh, funeral was going to be full of the the city's brass. And the uh, wife of the deceased man came to this pastor with a big, long list of the man's achievements. Uh, and she wanted him to read out this list at the beginning of a sermon in the in the funeral. And my uh, the, this pastor kind of said, "Well, um, that's not really what a what a funeral um, homily is a, is about." Um, but she insisted, and he relented. And so on the day of the funeral, he got up. Uh, for the sermon. And again, all the brass of the city, all the very, very successful people were there and they were leaning forward because the dead man was somebody they admired. And the pastor got up and and he got out the the list and and he read it. He read it. Um, Businesses he started, charities he gave to, causes in the city he championed, all of those things. And then, when he got to the end, uh, he uh, he he held up the paper, and he and he went like this, and then he let it fall, and he said, "None of those accomplishments avail him now." And it was quiet. And in that moment, it was shocking. To that congregation, can you see why it was shocking and it was shocking for a variety of reasons. On the one hand, it was shocking because it's just not what you expect you know that that pastor was pretty bold, yeah uh, and and, it, and it maybe it seemed a little disrespectful, but there's a deeper reason why, in that moment the pastor tearing that page apart was so shocking and and it has to do with this there in our kind of dominant culture, especially if uh, you uh, come from a, a kind of professional middle class or upper upper middle class background, there's there's at least two deep beliefs that are just core uh, to who we are. Many of us, most of us, I think. And and the first is this: that um, if you're gonna flourish in life, if you're going to achieve, if you're gonna gain uh, confidence and security and significance and control in your life, then then it's going, the, the most uh, decisive individual in achieving that is going to be you. You need to believe in yourself. You need to uh, have faith in yourself. You need to trust in your own competence to get that done. And, and, and we hear those messages a lot. If you've ever been to a career coach, you probably heard something like that. But, but it comes through, a, you know, every Disney animated film pretty much tells you, if you only believe in yourself, everything will be okay. And and that's the first one. The second, though, follows right along with it, which is something like this. My record of accomplishment is the thing that tells me I'm okay. My record of accomplishment is the thing that tells me I'm competent. My record of accomplishment is the thing that tells me I'm worthy of the security or the significance or the control or the the confidence that I hope to achieve in life. My record of accomplishment, whether it's my transcripts from high school that got me into the college which then got me the job which then my cv and my resume gets me the better job and so on and so forth my record of accomplishment is the thing that tells me i'm okay and that explains why it was so shocking when the record of the man's accomplishment was torn up in front of the people because They weren't just worried about the reputation of the man they respected that day. They were worried about themselves. They were worried about themselves because that torn paper represented their own hopes and dreams for themselves. No wonder they were shocked. Because it was challenging their deepest hopes in that moment. Now, why, Jim, are you telling me this? Because the reading we just heard is designed to do almost exactly the same thing for us. Think about that story, especially the first paragraph. Um, It's a story about a successful Roman soldier, a centurion. Uh, He's a successful leader in the army, Uh, and not only that, he's not just a career success, he's, he's like a good man, right? he built the synagogue for the Jewish people. In fact, today, side note, you can go to Capernaum and you can see uh, the synagogue of Capernaum. It's not the one he built. The one he built is underneath it, but it's the same footprint. Uh, and I've, I've been told that, that uh, one of the great early industrialists, I think it was Rockefeller, may have built this congregation, this, not this congregation, but this building. Um, so this guy's like the Rockefeller of his day. And he's kind, and he's generous, and he's good, and he's so good that the Jewish religious leaders of his town, which should be his enemies, actually vouch for him. Give him a stellar recommendation. So the point is, this guy's a professional success, but he's a moral success. And yet... The strange thing is that despite all of that, he refuses in this story to rely on his own competence, to rely on his record. He takes the record of his accomplishments and he tears them down the middle and he throws them up in the air, the pieces, and it's shocking. And do you know who it shocks? It shocks Jesus. But in a good way. Look at verse 9. Jesus looks at this man, well, he doesn't look at this man, he just looks at everybody else, and he says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. In other words, this guy's faith dwarfs anything anyone has ever seen. Now, I want to know what's so great about this guy's faith, that he renounces his own worthiness. Why is that good? That's what we're going to try to figure out, and I'm going to ask four more specific questions. Here are the four questions, ready? Uh, First of all, why do we want to rest on our worthiness? Number two, why is that a problem? Number three, what's the alternative? And number four, why is the alternative better? So first of all, why do we wanna rest on our worthiness? Go back to the story, look at verse two. It says this, now a centurion, a Roman uh, officer, had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, the elders of uh, the religious leaders pleaded with Jesus earnestly, saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built our synagogue. Now, notice how the religious leaders front-foot the man's uh, resume. He built our synagogue. I mean, Jesus preaches in the synagogue. There's all kinds of cool things in the synagogue. Uh, uh, He loves our nation. He's like the best kind of Roman. You gotta do what this guy wants, Jesus. Now, what's happening? Uh, Well, there's a backstory. Uh, Let me fill that in a little bit, okay? Um, And the backstory has to do with the Roman uh, patronage system. So the Roman empire was uh, run on a a patronage system. What does that mean? It worked a bit like this. You had somebody in power, a Roman official, for instance. And that Roman official, in order to uh, rule, Uh, his area well he needed in some sense the support of the people he ruled it always works that way one way or the other and therefore very often the Roman uh, leader the one in power would do nice things for the people he thought had influence so he might build them something like what happened here or he may give them uh, uh extra freedoms that not everybody gets or maybe he uh, protects them from some threat, or whatever the case may be. The person in power does nice things for those who are influential, but those nice things come at a cost. The powerful person does these favors, but by doing that, he places the people in his debt, and one day he's going to call that debt in. Now, slow down and just consider what the dynamic is in the system. The powerful person did things that made the powerful person worthy of people's allegiance, help and, um, and future favors in return. And what it is, it's a way of using power to do good things in order to increase power. It's a way of taking good good favors and transferring them into currency of power and control. If I do good things for these influential people under my rule, then in the future I'll be able to call that in and I can be confident that I'm in control because I have them over a barrel in one way or the other. Can you see how it works? And can you see how attractive that is? Now, keep that in your mind and come back to this story because the Jewish leaders come to Jesus and they basically say something like this. This man's record of achievement has made him worthy. And what that means for us and for you, Jesus, is you really got to give him what he wants. You got to give him what he wants because his record of achievement has made him worthy. His worthiness obligates you to, to return the favor. Come on, Jesus, don't let the team down now it's attractive resting on worthiness because it gives the person a sense of control and this is when you begin to see something fishy about it because not only is this how the roman patronage system worked but it's also one of the key ways and one one of the most intuitive ways that we relate to god religion and spirituality You see, we do good things in the expectation that in one way or another, our worthiness is going to provoke or obligate God to bless. And it's attractive because it gives us some sense of control over God. God, I'm a really good person. I mean, I'm not perfect, but if you're grading on a curve and you ought to grade on a curve, I'm better than average. And I, I mean, let me, let me tell you why. I go to church. I give to charity. I'm very tolerant of difference, but I'm also profoundly orthodox, and I stand up for what is right, and you can fill in the blank. And God, we can agree that I've done some pretty good things, and amongst the sure, I'm not perfect, but I don't ask for much. I just ask for a few well-earned comforts. Now, nobody prays that way, okay? But sometimes some beliefs, some intuitions are so deep inside us that we don't even need to say them out loud. We stand on our worthiness before God in a bid to control him or to feel like we are. And that's why it's attractive. We wanna be in control, we wanna be confident, we wanna have a sense of security and significance. And if we pile up the accomplishments, that makes us breathe deep a sigh of relief. But why is it a problem? Well, there's two reasons why it's a massive problem. Here they are. It distorts ourselves and it distorts God. think with me about this. Um, When we are standing on our worthiness before God, it creates an illusion that we are in control, that somehow we have got a bit over the barrel, that we're, in a sense, a God's patron. But if you think about that for like five minutes, yeah, it's crazy and it's an illusion. We are not in control. We're not even contr- in control of our lives. Like you and I, we did not choose to be born, did we? I, I didn't, it happened to me. Don't even remember. Um, and one day, every one of us is going to die. And that's not really in our control either. We start off not in control. We're going to end up not in control. And in the middle, if we imagine that we are the decisive controllers of our lives and of our destinies, and especially if we think that we're the decisive controllers of God, then, uh, friends, we're living in la-la land. La-la. I mean, It's fantasy. It's fantasy. It distorts us, but then there's an even bigger problem because it distorts God. When we rest on our worthiness before God, it smuggles in an idea that God doesn't really want to bless us. God's not highly self-motivated to do us right. Uh, God's a little bit stingy, God's a little bit shrewd and selfish, and because of that, what you need to do is you need to treat God a little bit like a business partner. You got to pay in, and you got to turn your good deeds into worthiness currency so that you can buy God off, or if you have to, do a little coercion. Now, Emmanuel, there's two ways to make an idol. Uh, one way is to take something that's not God and treat it as if it's God. The other way is to take the truth about God and distort it out of all recognition. Standing on your worthiness does both at the same time because it imagines that, we're, that we have a kind of control that's appropriate only to God, and therefore it's always a type of self-worship. And on the other hand, it, it mutes it eclipses God's self-driven generosity and his grace. And it makes God out to look more like a stingy pagan deity than the generous God of the Bible. So it's a problem because it roots us in idolatry. And when we find ourselves, when we live out the life of idolatry, it will ruin everything in our lives that can really last forever. It's a catastrophic problem. Everybody breathe. It's cheery. But it's going to get better, because there's a great alternative. Look at verse 6. When Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you come under my roof. Therefore, I didn't presume—that word presume is also a version of worthy— I'm, I did not think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, he, he goes. And to another, come, he comes. And my servant, do this, and he does it. All right, what's, what's the alternative? The alternative is renounce worthiness and trust in the authority of a generous God. Look at that story and just consider how strange this is. This centurion has remarkable recommendations, uh, the backing of the best religious leaders of his day. And everybody agrees. consensus view, this guy's amazing. And, and yet he says, "Jesus, I'm not worthy." Now, and he doesn't say what I think he should probably say. I, if I was coaching him, I would say, "You know what you should say? You should say something like this. you should say. Yes I've done some good things and they're 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 amazing. But but I've also done some bad things I don't really want to talk about. I've done some bad things and they probably cancel out the good things and therefore I'm probably not worthy. That's not what he says. Might be true but it's not what he says. What he just says is Jesus I I'm not worthy for you to visit me. Doesn't give a reason for his unworthiness. He just says I'm not. And the implication is he, it's as if he says all the good things I've done we're never meant to obligate you. I'm not trying to obligate you. I'm not playing, Jesus, the patronage game that's fundamental to my culture. I'm not playing that game. I refuse to stand on my worthiness because my worthiness is an illusion. It was never meant to be about my worthiness. I'm simply asking for healing. And I'm asking for healing, not because there's something in me that coerces you to do it, but because I know there's something in you that is willing and able to give it. Do you see how that shifts from himself to Jesus? And look more closely. Do you see in verse 8, do you see how he uh, uh, appeals to Jesus' authority? Says i'm a man under authority i know how it works just say the word it'll be done now emmanuel stay with me because that i want to show you how this appeal to jesus's authority reverses the two distortions we were just talking about think with me um the centurion he doesn't exert his authority Uh, he doesn't act as if he's in control. Instead, he surrenders to Jesus's authority. He puts himself low. And that reverses the first distortion. Remember, when we stand on our own worthiness, it makes us to believe an illusion that we're actually in control. And maybe even we can coerce God in one way or the other. But the centurion throws that whole idea out and turns it on its head because even though he's like the big sheriff in town like literally he knows that compared to Jesus he's small fries and by surrendering to Jesus's authority he's embracing the reality of the situation he's seeing himself as he really is and he's seeing Jesus as Jesus really is in other words he's become humble and humility is always the embrace of the real world. But not only does it reverse the distortion about him, it also reverses the distortion about God. Because when we stand on our own worthiness, remember, we imply that God is stingy, reluctant to bless, needs to be bought or coerced. But the centurion turns that upside down. The centurion appeals to Jesus's authority, And he does it with a confidence that's kind of suspicious. Where did he get this confidence that Jesus would do what he asked and do what he asked from a distance? Why? Where did that confidence come from? Well, we get a we get a clue in verse three. Look at verse three. Verse three said that the centurion had heard about Jesus. Now, what had he heard about Jesus? Well, I expect he had heard maybe something of Jesus' teaching. But almost certainly the main thing he had heard is the things that Jesus had done. He he heard that Jesus had healed. He heard that Jesus uh, had opened the eyes of the blind. He heard that Jesus spent time with sinners and tax collectors and other outcasts. He heard about the things that Jesus did, his actions. Now, if you want to know about someone's ideas listen to what it is that they say if you want to know somebody's character watch what it is that they do and the centurion heard about the things that jesus does and that persuaded him that jesus is not like the pagan deities that the centurion had grown up with. Jesus wasn't like the misrepresentations of maybe people in the religious community about who the God of Israel is. He realized that Jesus is not stingy. He's not shrewd and selfish. He's not reluctant to bless, but rather he's full of compassion. If we had time, we'd look at the second paragraph where Jesus sees this widow with her with her dead son and it says that Jesus was moved with compassion which means the word is that his guts seized up with compassion the centurion knew that in Jesus's character is a self-motivated desire to bless to heal to give what people don't deserve And therefore, this is crucial, friends, when the centurion put together Jesus' remarkable authority, together with his remarkable compassion, those two things combined and something called faith happened in the centurion's heart. Christian faith, Emmanuel, is when you renounce trust in yourself, when you renounce trust in your worthiness, And you trust exclusively in Jesus for your salvation, for your flourishing, for your uh, confidence, significance, security that you need. And you trust in him and not yourself because you know that Jesus is the perfect union of power and love, authority and compassion. That's the alternative to resting on your worthiness. And the centurion gained that faith by hearing of Jesus's miracles. Uh, Romans chapter 10 says, faith always comes by hearing. Hearing about Jesus and what he's done. But those miracles that the centurion heard about, they were just trailers. The real event was yet to come. The real event, when you see infinite power joined with infinite love, came when jesus gave himself up on the cross you know the thing about jesus is that jesus is the one human who could have rested on his own worthiness like he he could have done it but he chose a different path in a remarkable way god the father and god the son jesus christ uh, and god the holy spirit agreed together on a plan where jesus could share his worthiness with the unworthy and that's what happened when jesus died and rose again jesus as he died took our unworthiness upon himself and suffered everything that deep down we fear everything that makes us so uh, frightened and terrified of losing control everything that we're afraid of the mystery of death the crushing weight of guilt all of that, the, the, the pain of being ripped apart in relationship, all of those things, the consequences of evil, it all came down upon Jesus when he was on the cross. He suffered the penalty for our unworthiness, and when he rose again, he rose again with the authority to share his worthiness with those who don't deserve it. And Emmanuel, that explains why it's so much better to trust in the gift of Jesus's worthiness rather than to trust on our own think about that dead man's resume at the funeral when the pastor tore it up it was shocking why because uh, that resume of worthiness represented the thing that told everybody in that room they were okay It gave them a sense of control And of course, we don't want that torn up. We don't want the resume of our accomplishments torn up because we hold on to it with white knuckles because everything inside us is afraid that if we lose it, if we lose that stuff, then what will we be? What will I be? But friends, Jesus came to give us something much better than a frightened grasp onto a fantasy. He came to give us his own worthiness. He came to make, to, to do all things necessary so that we could gain the benefits of a flourishing, of a confidence, of a security that is beyond our capacity to desire. It's so much better. One of the terrible tragedies of trusting in your own worthiness is that you're limited to yourself. But you were made for better. You are designed with desires that cannot be uh, uh, addressed by your own performance. You are designed for desires that can only be granted, that can only be satisfied in an eternal relationship with an infinite God, and therefore, no matter how much you perform, no matter how much you rest in your worthiness, it's always going to come up short. But you are, but before you is held out. The pierced hands of God himself who says I've done all things necessary for your eternal flourishing, your security, your confidence, your assurance, it's all on offer. And that's why, Emmanuel, the better, better path is to say, oh, I'm trashing my own confidence in my worthiness. I'm pitching it out because I want the worthiness which I can never deserve. I want the benefits of Jesus Christ. I want eternal relationship with God. And here's the thing. It's not just about the eternal relationship with God when you die and you go to the new heavens and the new earth and all of those sorts of things. Wonderful as that is, it starts now because you get to live under the white-hot affection of a father who loves you. And you get to right now live. get up every morning and say, Father, I'm not worthy, but say the word and your servant will be healed. And you get to go to work and when it's going well, you get to say, Father, I'm not worthy of it, but I rejoice in it because it's a gift. And when it goes badly, you can say, Father, I wasn't worthy for it anyway, but I trust that you're going to work in the midst of this difficulty. And when you pray, you can pray to a God who's not sitting there with his cards held back and trying to give you a poker face you can pray to a god who you know is leaning forward saying i just can't wait to give you better than what you ask for friends when you rest on the worthiness of christ it'll change the way you work it'll change the way you pray you'll pray with boldness it'll change the way you worship because every time you praise and worship you'll be speaking to your blessed father who has embraced you with eternal and infinite love. Friends, there's a better path than the record of our achievement. And will you place your faith? And if you are a Christian, will you surrender that again? Because faith is the constant surrender. Faith into Christ today. And be renewed.